The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Jeffrey Hirsch, the man behind the Stock Traders Almanac. Jeff, I know we we know each other, but for those who are not familiar with you, just introduce yourself real quick here to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get involved in markets? And what are you doing with, with the Traders Almanac? Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. Thanks, everyone, for coming. My name is Jeffrey Hirsch. I am the son of Yale Hirsch, the man who created the Stock Traders Almanac back in the 60s. 66, he incorporated 68 edition, came out in 67. He's the guy that invented the Santa Claus rally and the January barometer, uh, which we'll get into. I took over from Pop around 2000, 2001, and we lost the big guy at 98 years old The in November 2001. Heck of a run. We have a service at StockTradersOmanac.com with members-only subscription content. And I'm also at Almanac Trader, as you guys probably can tell from here. So reach out and uh, ask us uh, for anything you want. We're always available. All right. Let's first go into what happened last year from historical context. I recall last time we did a space, Jeff, that to you it was somewhat foreseeable in the sense that history was suggested that year was destined to be probably a poor one anyone anyway for equities. But where? how did last year compare against other other things in the data set that you look at? Well, I mean, we're four-year cycle people. The Almanac is, you know, on a four-year cycle itself. This year's edition is the pre-election year edition. Last year was the midterm year edition. So, I mean, without pulling punches, 22 was textbook midterm year action. Bear markets, recessions, and wars tended to begin in the first two years of president's terms. Midterm years, definitely. Yale dubbed it the bottom picker's paradise. You know, we've talked about October. Yale was talking about October back in the 70s being this, you know, October phobia month at the, you know, beginning of the fourth quarter, after the end of the third quarter, that's negative. So almost a quintessential midterm election year bear market with an October bottom. I mean, I, I would say you can't write this stuff, but I do write this stuff. So, you know, it really set up well for the cycles and the seasonals. We also look at technicals, fundamentals, monetary policy, sentiment. All that stuff, and you know that's that also fell into the um, you know the bear market area as we started getting more more cautious, more negative around this time last year, and especially after the invasion on the twenty fourth, and then as we started breaking through stops, and you know we didn't get the positive beginning of the year, we broke the December low, 
which we can talk about all that stuff. But it really just played out as the cycle calls for it. And there was a lot of confirmation across many disciplines. And it did set up our outlook, a bullish outlook for this year, which is we're getting more you know, convinced of as as the data comes in. So that's kind of where we're at. How did that, um, so I'm with you, I, you know, textbook on last year, um, I would argue that the path was very unusual in the consecutive types of weekly declines and the way the VIX behaved, not having a spike, but you know, clearly second year is, you know, midterm years, years tend to be pretty weak. How does that compare though, when you do that analysis to what happened in the bond market? You know, aside from the fact that you've never seen treasuries have that kind of a sell-off, what's the typical seasonality for bonds in that four-year cycle? I mean, bonds used to go inverse to, to stocks. I mean, you know, in the best and worst months, worst months, we'd be in bonds and out of stocks. We saw all asset classes, including, you know, precious metals and stuff, though gold's coming around a bit now, all go in one direction. I think that is due to the, you know, what was the ZERP policy, the zero interest rate policy, and the massive amount of, of quantitative easing that we have. I, I'm not sure it's ever really going to go away, but I, I think that changed the bond cycle to really run with the stock cycle. I suspect because of what happened last year with it being a, a real typical, you know, uh, four-year cycle midterm year and with the Fed getting off the schnei, that we may get a return to, you know, a sort of an, an inverse or a correlation with stocks and bonds. We've seen some of these things before. I mean, at the end of the, the, the 90s, you know, all those years were up where there was no four-year cycle for a, a couple of cycles when it was just straight up with the dot-com boom. And then it did return. I don't know if you remember the midterm 02 bottom. Yes, we did have a, a retest in March 03, which some people have referred to. But I think bonds got sort of turned on their head because of Fed and fiscal policy. And I think that's maybe returning to... M- you know, more normal or older school cycles that now that we're back to sort of normal there. Yeah. And actually that's going to be a big theme, obviously, you know, throughout this hour here, but, but for the audience, maybe just explain what's the causation behind the presidential cycle, the midterm year being typically the weakest of the four years. Uh, you know, I, I saw some people yeah. commenting on, on this point saying, Oh, you know, that means I should just do it based on history. No, but there's, there's a reason for it. Not just based on history. I mean, that's what we do at StockTradersAlmanac.com, we take the history and overlay it with what's going on on the ground with technicals, internals, advanced declines, you know, breath, uh, new highs, new lows, sentiment indications, as well as fundamental analysis. So it's not just go with history. History rhymes. It doesn't repeat exactly. There are, you know, forces that that override history is a, a, a famous quote about I think it's from uh, Edson Gould, the old findings and forecasts editor, an old newsletter from the 80s, where, you know, if if the market doesn't go up during the bullish seasonal period, you know, that means there are other forces at play. So watch out when that bullish season's over. So, you know, when seasonality is not working, it's an indicator. But what creates the four-year cycle, we're kind of seeing it right here. It's the drive and effort of the incumbent party, the incumbent administration to retain power. So what happens when they come into office in the first two years, they take care of what I call these sort of more unsavory policy initiatives and set themselves up to really prime the prompt in the pre-election year. And we cite some of that stuff in the book, in the almanac, if, if anyone has that and wants to look in there. But case in point, this cycle, the Fed, which is, you know, kind of working with 
the administration, because they get up, reappointed and, and that sort of thing, took care of the dirty work last year. Still doing a little bit right now, but right now it's winding down in the pre-election year. I don't know if anyone was watching the sort of tour that President Biden's been making about infrastructure. He was just in New York talking about repairing the Amtrak and, and local tra- commuter train tunnel to Penn Station. And they stopped in Baltimore. So he's already out there making his rounds, prime, talking about prime owners spending money and talking up all the things that they're, you know, the Democrats and the administration are doing for the country and, and the voters and the people. So this is the the initiative. This is the, you know, what creates the four-year cycle is the fact that unlike any other nation in the world, we have a regular election for the leader of our country every four years. I mean, how many times has, has have Israel and the the UK changed their government in the last year? I, I can't keep count with this parliamentary uh, votes and no confidence stuff. That doesn't happen here. It takes a little bit more, a lot more effort to get rid of a president. They tried to do that with Trump a couple of times and it didn't work. You know, you got to you got to get a lot of people agreeing on things to get a president out. I don't think it's it's ever really transpired except for Nixon resigning in my lifetime. But um, it's that regular, it's the, we call it the, the quadrennial quadrille, the four-year cycle dance with the market and, you know, Washington, D.C. And that's one of the things that, that drives our outlooks and our analysis. You had mentioned Edson Gould, which was referenced in the 2014 Dow Award on utilities because Gould as a sort of legendary technician mm-hmm. would often look at utilities as a leading indicator. Let's talk about sectors for a moment. In that presidential cycle, what sectors tend to do better based on whether it's first year, second year, or the third year, the pre-election year, which we're in now? I don't think the sectors run as much in the four-year cycle. I think it's more of a business cycle-driven pattern with with the cycles and and some more rotations with how they're doing. I haven't really seen a distinct four-year cycle pattern for individual stock sectors. I think it depends upon the policies of the administration of which sectors, you know, are going to be, um, you know, more favorable with what's going on. So I don't really see a whole four-year cycle sector pattern that we've ever seen. So, you know, it's more broad market with kind of the rising tide lifting all ships in pre-election years. You know, I I, I think with the tech-driven economy and world that we have now, and we had a big tech recession sell-off last year, sort of seemed to, you know, bottom out at the end of the year with all the tech layoffs on the horizon. Looks like that's going to happen. I mean, there's a couple other things that are pointing to me for, for NASDAQ. But if you want to call tech, you know, in general, a sector like the NASDAQ or the QQQ, when I look at that sweet spot of the four-year cycle, which I have on a some of the charts, I think it might have been one that we, I put out last year where we had the four-year cycle uh, for the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ. And you see during that sweet spot, which is we're in the middle of right now, Q4 of the midterm year through Q2 of the pre-election year, Dow and S&P are up about 20% over the three-quarter period there, and NASDAQ up 29.3, almost 30%. So if you wanted to look at something, and, and, and tech's been you know, leading right now, as, as have small caps, but that's a little early year January effect as well, tech's probably a good place to be. I do own the Qs myself, full disclosure. Pick some more up last uh, fall on our buy signal. So I would say technology is probably sitting in the, the sweeter sweet, the sweetest sweet spot right now.
from what we've seen. Uh, and I, I just shared in the nest exactly that tweet because I've used it myself in referencing, you know, why also early October I was saying, you know, the end of the world is, is the bull case. And, you know, uh, that's why melt ups about to take place with the exception of that December, you know, kind of high risk period. So it, it is interesting to me, though, it's, it's I feel especially on FinTwit that people just keep gravitating towards certain old narratives when they're not looking at historical probabilities and cycles because they're thinking that this time is different. Do you find as you communicate to clients, to people that you know, when you talk about these cycles that in a year like this year, there's more skepticism? Well, this is going to be the one time where the probabilities don't favor it. How do you kind of communicate when there's this entrenchment of a narrative that isn't based on anything except headlines? I mean, I like it when people get angry at what we're or our analysis and our calls. It tells me that, you know, when we hear a lot of people going against and being, you know, shocked or startled with what we're we're putting out there, it kind of lends me to believe that we're onto something, you know. Anecdotally, you know, back in, in 2002, when we put out a big buy, buy, buy headline, which was reminiscent of Yale's 1974 buy, buy, buy headline, we received a lot of subscriber, you know, not hate mail, but just, what are you, crazy? You know, you can't put out this bullish forecast. So everyone's pretty keen these days on just reacting to headlines and, you know, short-term reactions, which, you know, if you're a nimble day trader, have at it. I know I have colleagues and friends that do well with that stuff. They have great trading techniques. A lot of them are technicians. But, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, people say, LOL, you know, seasonality's not working anymore or, how could, you know, that's not going to work when the Fed's hiking and inflation is very high. Well, you know, historically, we've seen the market is an anticipating mechanism. It's a barometer, not a thermometer, as my father always taught me. And the market is looking out across whatever economic, you know, valley of, of despair that we see here into six, eight, 12 months out into 2024 with, you know, past the sort of earnings trough that is you know, S&P capital IQ forecast earnings to, to bottom here in, in Q2 of, of 23. So, you know, my my comment to people is, yeah, well, the more of you that disagree with me, the more my contrary antenna purr and the more comfortable I am with my outlook. Granted, there's going to be bumps along the way. You know, our our, our forecast for, for 23 was, you know, choppy start and then the pre-election year bull emerges. I think my biggest fear right now is that I'm not bullish enough. You know, the market's going to surprise to the upside, which seems to be the, the least forecasted outlook there. Maybe Tom Lee's the most bullish. Yeah. And, and I've been pretty, I, I always use that line. It's like, you know, you're right when the counter argument is an insult. Yeah. Right? And I've seen that <laughs> so many times, especially around this kind of when I pivoted back to, you know, conditions are there again for the melt up, you know, after the first week of January. Um, by the way, those in the audience, please do me a favor. Um, Invite some of your colleagues and friends that are on Twitter uh, to this space. On the very top, there's like a up arrow. Click that. Click invite by DM. Any kind of uh, help in spreading the word while this is live is always uh, really much appreciated if you enjoy these kind of conversations. I I'm curious, Jeff, is there, um, is there any change in the behavior of the four-year cycle in the pre-GFC QE era versus the post-GFC QE era? And I say that because you know, QE did – at least for the S&P, in particular QE3, cut off a lot of the kind of left fat tailness of large caps, right, and became a very smooth bull market. Any structural change that happened to the way these years play out pre-GFC, post-GFC? I don't know if it's if it's structural change, but, you know, 
paused temporarily off. As I mentioned, you know, the the late 90s raging bull definitely impacted the four-year cycle. And basically, there was no there was no down years, you know, there was no weakness in the first two years. And I, and I think temporarily, uh, as as I quoted Edson Gould before, and of course, you're one of the people that will, will remember who he is. There are times when there are forces that are stronger than cycles and market behavior and seasonality. And, um, you know, there's things like war and, and pandemics and zero interest rate policy and, you know, the ATMs of the, you know, when homes became ATMs and we had the, the housing crisis and, and the financial crisis. Sure, that's going to over ride the four-year cycle and seasonalities and other trends and patterns. And that's why we look at other data and other disciplines to um, keep us in check and make sure we're not just blindly following the historical patterns when there's something that's impacting it going on currently live in the ground, you know? Let's talk about the... um... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. The average returns in pre-election years, it's it's the strongest of the four-year cycle. So the Bears have a hell of a uh, headwind to fight against just based on history for the year, yeah. right? What's the range? What's the average that you've, you've come across? I mean, it's like 16%, you know, 16.4 for the Dow. It's even stronger for the S&P and NASDAQ. I mean... Our forecast is for average 15 to 20% returns for a best case scenario here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, I mean, low end, you know, you've got years where the market's getting taken, taken out, but most of those years are not pre-election years. And that's, and that's why the pre-election year is so strong. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting if you look at the combinations that we put this chart out, in the Almanac, and it's also in our subscriber reports, combination of all pre-election years for the S&P up like 17% on average. First term pre-election years up closer to 20. And you got pre-election years after a midterm year bare, a little over 20. And then we took our aggregate cycle, which you know combines the decennial pattern, which I don't put a whole lot of stock in, but it's something we, we want to keep an eye on, you know, the third year of the decade as well as the pre-election year, and then all years going back to 1949. And that's still just over 12% average return. So, I mean, you're looking at double digits for the most part for the pre-election year. There's, you know, few and far between that have that have not been up. And it's usually caused by some overarching ex- exogenous factor. You know, I mean, what do we have? The uh, 2011... Summer we had the, the, the debt, debt thing, and then uh, you know, there's been a couple of years, but it's always something that's that's overriding it. You know, there's there's something bigger at play, and it, it's really we had 2018 it was a mid that was a, a, a another midterm year that was down there. What was it? 2015 was down two percent. 
you know? I mean, there's been a couple of small losses, but usually imp- always impacted by something that's not, it's not, you know, systemic. It's, it's uh, exogenous events. As I recall, 1987 was a pre-election year. Yes. Right? Then the Dow still closed positive, right? But to, yeah, the Dow rise, I think, something like 30% up until Black Monday, right? Yes. But, so for the full year, we still kind of fit in the positive cycle dynamic. But talk about volatility on average during these kinds of years. So you can have an up year, but you can have a volatile up year. <laughs> the thing that's, that, that's most important is these, these negative or, or at least volatile pre-election years that we're talking about. And thank you for remembering 87. Slipped my mind there. We're not preceded by bear markets in the previous two years. So the conviction for this year comes not just from the historical pattern for the the pre-election years themselves, but for the four-year cycle and the fact that you've got, that we've had this bear market. I mean, there are people out there that are going to contend that we're still in the bear market and we're going to, you know, make a new low. I I don't see that. Um, I'm seeing some technical confirmation here, which we can talk about in a minute, but it's really supported and important about what happened in the prior year or two. So if you don't have a bear market in the first two years, you know, that, that makes the pre-election year prone to more volatility. But that has that is not the case this cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to think through sort of the, the way that this plays out. So last year on a real return basis, the seventh worst in history for the S&P after inflation. I myself am of the mindset that I think there's – I personally think there's a credit event looming out there that might break the lows, but not yet. That you have to kind of maybe suck in more bulls before that, which would almost be like an 87-style type of year, right? Big up and then sudden event. But since you mentioned the technicals lining up, let's talk about the short term. One of the things I see a lot on Twitter uh, in relationship to the Fed and why it should be cautious – And maybe why Michael Burry just yesterday said sell, although nobody knows what he actually said sell about, is this idea that, well, commodities are surging. So inflation is going to come roaring back. I personally don't view it that way. I think this is just an oversold bounce and it may be more growth than inflation. But what are some of the things that from a short term perspective you're observing that make the bullish case? I mean, get into the tech, you know, the the tacticals. I mean, we've got Several different breath thrusts and momentum thrusts from guys like Walter Deemer and, and Wayne Whaley and other people out there that are, are showing underlying broad market strength. You've got, I mean, you look at the pulse of the market that we put out where it shows new highs and new lows. The new lows bottomed in June. We're seeing more encouraging numbers in the market internals. And then there's this, this downtrend line that everyone drew from the January highs up until recently, that was the perfect downtrend line, yeah. by the way. Everyone, they love that line. But we've we've been poking through that, and we've made some serious progress and, and constructive upside behavior on that. I think NASDAQ last, last time I looked, and, and the NDX, which we look at also, has struggled to break through that. And there's the 200-day. I mean, we had a golden cross in a Dow with the 50-day coming up through the 200-day. Russell 2000 held its, its closing low from June and showed strength during that small cap week period in October. NASDAQ did make a lower closing low in, in December, but if my, my eyes are correct, Dow, S&P, Russell 2000, NASDAQ all made intraday lows on October 13th. So I'm seeing encouraging breath numbers, new highs and lows. We're getting some positive action out of the the moving averages, we're breaking that trend line. I could show you a, an inverse head and shoulders. 
on the S&P with the June lows, the October lows, and the December lows. Somebody who's drawn that that trend line, the perfect trend line you were talking about was was showing other resistance coming off the down slanting neckline from the the head and shoulders top November, you know, January and and, and March or there's like two two different necks there, but as I said, inverse head and shoulders in play, you know, and then there's sentiment. There's a lot of bear still on the sideline. Yeah, bullish sentiment is up, but it's not that there's no, you know, it's not to that level where there's, it's, it's so concerning. And there's a lot of different sentiment indicators out there. I tend to gravitate towards investors' intelligence, percentage advisors bullish and bearish. You've got people who are paid for their, in, for their advice. We're on that list as opposed to the surveys of people telling you what they think the market's going to do. Always like put-call ratio, especially the weekly one that used to be in Barron's. But with the options market being flooded with all sorts of different expirations, I think that put-call, the equity-only put-call is a little bit, you know, it's changed. It needs to be reevaluated. But we did have a, a spike, I guess it was December near the low there. I'm just going to we have it in our um, our outlook. Although, real quick, I will say just it's interesting. So I'm with you. I mean, you can argue the put End call ratio December, is not as when we bottomed put calls where we had that spike, but that includes all those zero, you know, data to expiration ones. But go ahead. No, no. What I was going to say, I mean, it, it's so I'm with you that the the put call ratio probably is not yeah. as much. And of a Vix too, result. but and Vix too, right? But I'll take actually there's another angle to that, which is that to the extent that you have manic volume in zero DTE type trading. That can be, I'd argue, independent of whether it's a call or put, that can be a contrarian indicator only because, as you know, right, most returns come from close to close, not open to close, right? In other words, if everybody is increasingly making very short-term day trading type of options bets, to me, that, that seems like almost a bearish signal, which, if the volume is very high, may actually be bullish because nobody wants to hold overnight. Yeah, it's a fear indicator. And it, it may not it may not be ruined the put call ratio. It may be just the, the levels may be changed on it. You know, we may have to reset that. The, the. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. benchmarks. I do also think that the sentiment point is is interesting to focus on because I see this all the time on Twitter. People say, oh, you know, you're at extreme greed. That means we have to fall apart tomorrow. It's like, no, bulls stay bullish for a while. Overbought Correct. stays overbought for a while. Per, per, personally, I've always thought that sentiment isn't predictive in, in the sort of idea of extreme greed. It's more about the extreme fear where it's predictive. It's much more predictive on extreme fear. And, and this is sort of the reason, I mean, you know about our best and worst six month switching strategy. Some people like to say sell in May, but that's not what you got to buy in October. You get yourself sober is my my retort to that. But we use MACD, the you know really reliable indicator that I'm sure most people know about, to trigger our buy and sell signals either after October for on or after October first for the buy, and on or after April one for the sell. The last month of the best months or, or June for Nasdaq and Russell, but. Getting to the bottoms being more, you know, fear being more indicative at bottoms. I mean, 
we use the shorter MACT, the 8179, which is what Jerry Appel, who invented it, uh, you know, originally told everyone, originally decided that it was better for bottoms because it's shorter. Bottoms are an event. And, you know, that's why you use a, a, a shorter and faster MACD to, to identify that turn, whereas tops are a process. They take more of a time, more time to develop. And that's why we use that 12.26.9 for the cell signal. So to your point on sentiment indicators at their extremes being, you know, more constructive or more useful at calling low, at bottoms and turns there, it, it's definitely the case. And bullish sentiment can can go higher for longer. And, and we saw that that happened with the bear sentiment a bit in um, 22. It, you know, there was a few different periods we had the bearish numbers up pretty high in June. And, you know, that's where you got to overlay with a few other things. But we are not there at fully scary, contrary bullish sentiment right now. There's still plenty of bears and people expecting a correction on the sidelines to keep fueling this bull. I mean, it's, it's kind of that wall of worry that you know, everyone always talks about that we've been climbing and probably will continue to climb for a little while. Let me uh, reset the room for the remaining minutes here. Everyone, please make sure you follow Jeffrey Hirsch. And I highly personally recommend, I'm not getting paid to say this, Stock Traders Almanac. I mean, I, I, I've always been a fan of the type of work that Jeff and his family legacy has put out there. I highly, highly encourage people look at this instead of falling for the tweets from anonymous bear accounts that get the most likes with information that everybody else knows has no predictive power. At least if you can identify where you are in the cycle, you have a better chance over multiple roll of the die. That's where the Stock Trades Almanac really is helpful. Again, this will be a podcast and all your favorite platforms. And please, everybody here, DM your friends, your colleagues, get people to join the conversation and don't hesitate to come up and ask questions. I mean, I'm not a huge Elliott Wave guy. I mean, I assume that's what you're talking about. Fibonacci numbers are interesting. Whether it's the next couple of weeks or the next few months, I think there's some key resistance levels that we're talking about. I mean, I think that's what you're, the, the crux of your question or, and point is, the, you know, we, we talked about the, the trend line that we've gone through. We still need to leave it more in the dust. You've got those December highs that I'm looking at. And then you mentioned the August high, which was something very interesting for us. I think that's, you know, up around 4,300 S&P. That's, that's critical. And we need to clear that whether it happens in the next few weeks or the next few months. I'm not sure that that's as important of the time frame. If we consolidate for a little while, that's not going to upset me as long as we don't break lower through those December lows would be concerned. So, you know, February, which is where we're at right now in the next couple of weeks, generally the weak link in the best six months from a seasonal perspective. But much better in pre-election years. We've got some stats out there on that. I mean, it's on the feed if you want to look for it. So I think you're on to the importance of clearing some more resistance levels and putting some distance between them and as where we are now. But um, next couple of weeks, for me, it's not necessarily as critical as the levels themselves, whether it happens you know, sooner or later. You had mentioned um, Russell 2000, and I keep on tweeting Watch small caps because it's related to breadth. There's many more small cap names than large cap names. Small caps are an interesting part of the marketplace. If you look at the Russell 2000 divided by the S&P, the ratio is back to 1987 levels, which means that if you held the S&P or small caps going back to 1987, you had the same return but with a lot more volatility being in small caps. Um, any interesting findings when it comes to seasonality for smaller cap companies, in particular in pre-election years, it seems to me that 
that's where it could be really interesting if you want to be bullish, especially given the sector composition being different than you know the the, the market cap weighted averages. Small caps, again, full disclosure, I own the IWMs. We're in the small cap season right now. People mention the phrase, the January effect. I'm not sure everyone knows what it is, but it's the tendency for small cap stocks to outperform large caps in January. As documented in the Almanac on pages, I think, 112 and 114 this year. If memory's 114, I think, yeah. Most of that January effect really starts in mid-December. Kind of starts bottoming, you know, where where small caps are underperforming in October, November. Then mid-December, they start to take off. And most of that's made in the last couple of weeks of December, then into mid-January. A little bit of a dip at the beginning of Feb, and then it continues to rally into March. So seasonally, whether it's whatever year you are in the four-year cycle, and I think just the fact of the overarching bullish tendency of pre-election years is going to make that uh, potentially even stronger for the the small caps right here during this period of time. So that's what I think is 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 more important or at least most important right now for for the Russell 2000 and and the small cap sector. And again that would that would also coincide and confirm the strength in housing mm-hmm. because small caps are more sensitive to the domestic economy, lumber showing strength. Now you got the small cap follow through. I mean this whole idea of of leading indicators, they lead, they move in advance of the other parts that then react with the lag, which I think personally is what's happening in the short term. Let's go to my friend. Yeah, we're seeing a, a sector rotation from, I mean, tech got hammered last year. And we're seeing, you know, I think all those big tech layoffs that were announced, I think that's the sort of end. And, and that's them cleaning house and realizing that they can't be staffed up for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent growth. It's more like five or 10. And I think tech's telling us by its performance in January, being the proponent of the January barometer, the son of the inventor, that. What happens in January, so goes the year. And I think that's also, I know Sam Stovall does it with sectors, which he and I are going to be talking about that at, at some point together. So I think you're seeing the January barometer for NASDAQ and the tech stocks telling you that it's the sector to be in. And all the other factors that I've mentioned with the cycle and some of the other, you know, with the bear market after, prior to a, a trifecta and NASDAQ, I don't know if I even mentioned that, you know. I think that bodes very well for for tech here in 23 after being sold off so much. So you're seeing it right, Mike. And I just want to make sure that, you know, I mean, yesterday was the end of January. The January barometer did come in. I think I mentioned a little bit in the beginning, and that makes our January indicator trifecta three for three with the Santa Claus rally, which was the last five days of the year and the first two of the new year, not some any random period that people like to talk about. And the first five days early warning system and the full month January barometer, all positive. And, you know, we put this out yesterday in our subscriber note, the last 31 times that happened since 1949, 28 of the full years were up, only three down. That's 90%, you know, of them. Average gain, 17.5%. That's 17 and a half. But taking away January and just in the last 11 months of the year, up 27 of 31, that's 83%. 12.3% gain. And then you take the years where you had the bear market in the year prior. And I did a chart, which I haven't put out on the blog or the, the Twitter feed yet. These 13 years since since 1949, where you had a trifecta after a bear market, up 
13 of 13. And the full year is not all double-digit gains. Last 11 months, up 13 of 13. Average of, so The full-year gains average is 22.1%. Last 11 months, 16.8. With a couple of high single-digit, you know, higher single-digit gains, three of them. The rest of them, pretty solid. And then I did a chart of NASDAQ, Dow, and S&P in years where there's a trifecta after a bear market. NASDAQ's soaring up at the top, nearing 32% gain for the year. You know, I don't know if you remember I said the sweet spot for the four-year cycle, NASDAQ's up 29%. But I'm still seeing the seasonal pattern on this chart where you've got, you know, Q1, Q2 up really strong, sort of flattens out and bounces around, goes a little sideways through the worst six months with a, you know, second with a, a low point in October, very typical. And then the last couple of months of the year, November, December, really strong. So tech's looking like it's it's uh, showing its strength early on. I'd also add, I think tech is a contrarian sector trade in the context of everybody screaming about energy, right? And, and this is the thing, it's like, whether it's, whether it's tech or, or small caps, the bear market started February 2021 for a lot of the tech names. The bear market for the vast majority from a breath perspective started February 2021. So time would also argue that you're due, right, for right. these areas to start leading again. Yeah, it's similar to the tech story. I mean, they were down and out for, for quite a while. And we're seeing China open and a lot of things around the rest of the world, you know, post-COVID and, and bear market coming around. I mean, I saw a stat, I think Ritholtz put it out. from some, He picked it up somewhere where, you know, there's not really any foreign markets or any market in the world that's in a bear market right now. So I'm not a huge foreign market investor, but there's definitely um, some beta over there and, and uh, some alpha over there, excuse me. And I think, again, it's showing itself right here in, in January and coming off of, you know, uh, 12 months or more of, of being in the doldrums. So Definitely a place to be in 23. I'd add real quick, I keep going back to this point, and I'll keep hammering this because I don't think many people really understand sort of why I keep showing these distribution returns on the S&P and emerging markets. When QE3 and zero interest rate policy took place, it's fact. You did not have that sort of more classic fat left tail where you'd have a higher degree of frequency of large declines uh, yeah, than uh, what you would see in a normal distribution. You're off the zero bound. You don't have zero interest policy. You don't have QE anymore. We can debate whether it comes back or not from here to tomorrow. But the reality is the removal of all this accommodative uh, money is that it now normalizes the playing field in terms of risk for stocks domestically and overseas. So if valuations for international didn't matter for the last decade because we had this unfair advantage of QE benefiting U.S. stocks and now that's gone, valuations for international should matter. So I do think part of this, this what we're seeing – I myself think that we're in a new regime that really does favor anything and everything outside the U.S. I'm not so sure QE is so over. I think they're going to be forced to, that, yeah. to, to back off pulling away the full punch ball. If you look at the M2 numbers, yeah, it's come down, you know, percentage-wise quite a bit, but it's still elevated. I don't think we're going to go back to much to pre-pandemic levels too much. We'll probably end up still being around six or seven trillion. Maybe they'll pull a couple off there, but it doesn't look like it's going to contract that much. I'm not sure that they have the, that they really can pull it all away to pre-pandemic levels. I think you need to change your, your mindset that you're in a bear market. And I think you need to find the stocks that fit your portfolio, your strategy, individual stocks. I'm not sure this is the 
medium or place to be thrown out individual names. I've got some, you know, at my website uh, on my list at, at stocktradersalmanac.com. I think you could do very well just being in the, the main index ETFs, the Qs, the Russells, uh, that sort of stuff. But um, and, and some of the sectors that, that we've been talking about here, but individual stocks, the ones I, the ones I pick are a little too much, a little too off the radar to be thrown out. On a Twitter space, let me um, let me ask you something that's, that I always see as sort of a counter to a bull narrative, which is that valuations are still elevated, mm-hmm. as if value, valuations seemingly only matter when you're bearish. Nobody cares about when when you're bullish, right? <laughs> How do you think about sort of the interplay of of fundamentals, valuations, and where we are in 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 a particular presidential cycle year? You know, I have to imagine that. The cycle dominates more than fundamentals, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, I don't, I don't think fundamentals are the dominant force. I, I think they're definitely a, a big force. I'm not one of those guys that all that matters is earnings. One of my big fundamental metrics I look at is price to sales, which is much harder to manipulate on the financials. So I look for revenue growth and acceleration of revenue growth in the stocks that I pick, along with earnings growth and acceleration of earnings growth. But I think the four-year cycle is is showing its strength right now, and and there are times when, you know, these different disciplines are more more impactful. Uh, the four-year cycle to me looks pretty impactful right now with the with the midterm bear and bottom in October last year. Fundamentals probably a little bit less so right now because we've been through all that negative fundamental downdraft, and the market anticipates that. I think technicals are proving to be more impactive and constructive right now with the some of the breath thrusts and advanced decline line stuff and trend line and moving average, you know, breaching we've been doing. So yeah, I'll, I'll give the pre-election year and the four-year cycle uh, a bit of an edge right now. First term, midterm, pre-election years are stronger because it's the first time they're really trying to get reelected themselves. And I've actually, there's a chart of that in the Almanac and we do that. Um, we break it down into, you know, the parties as well. We find that first terms of the pre-election years are stronger. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it does it does have an impact with the first or second term. What about um, other sort of maybe kind of shorter term seasonality patterns that you've seen? I mean, we can debate whether you want to call it seasonal or not, but FOMC weeks, they from the research I've done and the work I've done, they tend to be mm-hmm. up. And FOMC weeks tend to have you know better returns than non-FOMC weeks, despite all the talk around, you know, Powell's going to just whack the bulls on their head today. Maybe he does, but the odds are simply not in your favor. Any other interesting kind of short-term things that repeat that are worth Yeah, I mean, the, the FOMC days are interesting. You know, it's it's not quite as regular to really, I mean, you, you ha- it happens all the time, but it's the the, uh, the cycle is a little bit odd with what it's about every six weeks or so, and it's not quite exactly the same. There's been several trading you know, I guess strategies that have tried to game the, the Fed. I think it's it's not quite as repetitive. It depends more upon whether you're a tightening cycle or loosening cycle, or you know what what kind of Fed you have there. If they're more vocal, I mean, the Fed's been getting more transparent over the years, anyway. But we look at you know turn of the month stuff, which is working right now. I mean, today's the first day of February, one of the more bullish first trading days of the month. But you know, with the Fed. People being afraid of the what the Fed's going to say is going to be too hawkish. I think that's having more of an impact right now. We also had the big January. You know, I said before, February tends to be the weak, weak link, especially, you know, after big January gains. But in pre-election years, it's stronger. You've got the President's Day holiday trading, which is a regular occurring event 
where people tend to do things and, and, and leave the, the market in the street, that's become more, more bullish than it used to be. The best six months we're in right now, I mean, I don't know if that's short enough term, but, you know, there's pretty much something. You got, you got uh, options, expirations. You know, we cover a lot of that in the book and, and on our newsletter and a lot of stuff we put out on, on the Twitter feed and on our blog, too. So there's always something on the calendar whether it's up or down or sideways uh, that you can you can trade or at least m- not make a move or make a move in your portfolio, depending upon what the seasonality or, or, or pattern is telling you. I know you do some work with, with the commodity space, yeah. Jeffrey. Any, um, any interesting observations when it comes to commodities? Because that does relate to sort of where we are in the inflation cycle as well. Well, we're going to be putting out Commodity Traders Almanac for 2024. Last one we did was 2013. And um, we we got the rights to that back. So if anyone's interested in the Commodity Traders Almanac for coming out later this year for next year, you can go to StockTradersAlmanac.com and click on the tab for Commodity Traders Almanac and, and you know let us know that you want to get updates on it and, and we'll make sure to inform you of it when it comes out. Right now, the commodity trades that, that we're looking at are energy, copper is in play right now, gold, natural gas. Some of that's running away, looks like. Oil and the energy stocks are, are coming back a little bit. I just looked like they were down before. But right here in this period of time, the energies and, and metal complexes are in play. Copper tends to bottom in December. Oil and gas, usually December through February, they find a low. I think we had a little exogenous impact from what happened over from what's happening over in, in Ukraine. Those are the main commodities that we're looking at right now. Maybe for the um, last few minutes here, again, everybody, make sure you follow Jeffrey Hirsch and check out Stock Traders Almanac. This is more kind of a of a behavioral psychology question. How, how do you how do you get how do people rewire themselves to think in terms of historical probabilities? Because the data is out there, but seemingly people just don't want to pay attention too much to it. Well, I don't know. The Almanac's been around for fifty six years. We're definitely doing a fifty seventh edition. It's a nice little spiral bound book you can keep on your desk. Mine's open right now while I'm talking with you guys. It comes free with a subscription to my website and reports. And I think you got to get into the book and look at it. I mean, I'm visual. So you got to go through and look at these patterns. We do a lot with seasonal charts and, you know, you got to keep these, these things in the back of your mind. When, when certain times of the year, you know, you got to have your antenna purring coming into the end of the summer. You know, there's that that summer rally hype everyone was talking about in August, we looked at that and said, it looks like we're about ready to end that summer rally and, and head towards the sell-off in September, October. I and mean, people talk about it when it's in the news, but the trick is to study it even when it's not in the news and be ready for it when you see it so you can recognize the pattern. Sometimes it doesn't always set up right. I mean, we do a lot with you know seasonal patterns with, with sectors and the commodity complexes, whether the you know the the underlying sector or the, or the, the you know the commodity is actually tracking the seasonal pattern well or not, you know, and if it's not, then maybe that's not we're not going to institute that trade or get into that pattern if it's not really setting up well. Again, like we were saying with the pre-election years and the midterm years, same thing. It's set up really well for a big pre-election year with the bear market last year. If we didn't have you know a sell-off in the midterm year or the pre-election year, maybe. Excuse me, the post-election year, the mid-term year, maybe think the prospects for the, the pre-election year aren't as aren't as bullish as they would normally be. So you got to just, you know, take some time to incorporate cycle analysis and market history and not just counting of, you know, this is the, the best January since, you know, 01 or whatever date it is. It's more about 
the, the history of the, you know, the changes in, in, in how people move their money about. And most of the stuff is driven by the movements of institutions with their money and the quarterly adjustments. And, you know, you've got the, the October situation with the, the October 31 deadline, which I'm sure you know about as much as anybody where there's an accounting reconciliation that requires transactions to be made before the October 31st, which creates that October phobia, which has been going on even before that, because you've got this tendency for people to gear up for year end and October sits at that confluence of the year, the end of the, the beginning of the fourth quarter, the setting up for the end of the year. And, you know, it really makes a difference if you can get yourself geared to the, the, the pattern of the, of the market. I mean, that's what the Almanac was made for, so that you could follow your own schedule along with the markets. That was Yale's motivation back in 66. I think it's a good place to wrap this space up. Special thanks to others that keep on obviously appearing to join these conversations. Uh, and of course, to Mr. Jeffrey Hirsch, who's always a wealth of knowledge. Thank you everybody for joining. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.